Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode six of Mr. Graney's Global Podcast. Today, we are going to be covering our last uh, River Valley civilization, and this time we are moving further east in Asia into China. The last two River Valley civilizations that we talked about were the Mesopotamians and the Indus River Valley. Today, we are going to talk about the Shang Dynasty, which, like the previous two civilizations, formed around rivers and developed complex societies. Now, the major difference between the Shang and the Mesopotamians and the Indus is that this civilization, which began around 2000 BCE in China, uh, the the civilizations that rose from this still exist today all right so let's start off where we usually do with the geography of of china and the area surrounding where um, the shang dynasty developed uh so what we want to do is we want to look at civilizations in china which um is really interesting because a lot of them have been isolated from other civilizations because of natural barriers. When we talk about natural barriers, we're talking about naturally forming geographic features. Now, the most significant of the ones in China are mountain ranges and deserts. All right, The first one is the Taklamakan Desert, the Gobi Desert, and the Himalaya Mountains, which uh, make up almost two-thirds of China's landmass. In addition to this, there are two major river systems that flow in China where the Shang developed. These two rivers are the Huanghe, which we will be referring to it as the Yellow River, and then the Changjiang, also known as the Yangtze River, and we will be referring to it as the Yangtze River. Now, the Yellow River gets its name because it deposits enormous amounts of yellowish silt, uh, which we know is great for agriculture. And what happens is this overflows its banks and it uh, creates uh, more crops. Now, also like the Mesopotamians and the Indus River Valley, the Shang dealt with the dangers of flooding. The Yellow River floods could be extremely devastating and they could destroy entire villages. For this reason, the Yellow River earned the nickname China's Sorrows. In addition to the flooding, China faced isolation, which did not allow them to trade with other civilizations. And in addition to this, they faced constant invasions from the West and the North throughout history. And what is really interesting is that even though this is going to be an agriculturally based society, right, only about 10% of China's land is suitable for farming. But as I said, agriculture would remain at the heart of its civilizations. Now, let's talk about the rise of the Shang. About the time the civilizations of Mesopotamia and the Indus Valley declined, the Shang rose to power in northern China. The Shang Dynasty lasted from around 1700 BCE to about 1027 BCE. It was the first family of Chinese rulers to leave written records, and that's going to be one of their biggest achievements is the fact that um, they made a writing system and they started recording their history. The Shang kings also built elaborate palaces and tombs, and these palaces and tombs have been uncovered by archaeologists, and the artifacts reveal much about the Shang society. Now let's move on to the government of the Shang. The Shang dynasty was a monarchy, 
which is when a um, civilization is governed by kings. And in this case, it was a series of kings over about 600 years, and there was about 29 or 30 kings in total. Now, the king was served by uh, officials who held specialized position of authority and function, and the officials belonged to a hereditary class of people. Now, I want to back up a second, and I want to make sure that we understand that when a society is governed by one person like a king, or if there's a very, very small group of people, we call it a centralized government because power is centralized into one person or one small group of people. Okay, so we just talked about how um, the uh, officials, all right, that served underneath the kings, they belong to what is called a hereditary class of people. And what you're talking about when you're talking about hereditary class is that um, in order to be a king or a top official um, in the Shang, you needed to be related by blood to the current king. This meant that the same family could rule over their kingdom for many years. Now, while the king lived in and ruled from a capital city, it wasn't always the same city. And although historical records mention many different Shang capitals, only a few have actually been confirmed with archaeological evidence. The interesting part of this is no one knows exactly why a king would keep moving the capital, but some scholars and historians think that it had to do with internal power struggles uh, within the royal family. All right, so let's move on to the cities of the Shang. The oldest and more, most important city to the Shang uh, was called Anyang, which also happened to be uh, its capital. All right, unlike the cities of the Indus Valley or uh, and the Mesopotamians, all right, which built their uh, civilizations out of uh, usually like mud and clay, and they baked it and made bricks out of it, Anyang was built mainly of wood. Okay, and the way it was set up is that the higher classes lived in timber-framed houses uh, within um, the city walls. Okay, um, and the and uh, outside of the walls is where the peasants and craftsmen lived. All right, and they lived in much much um, worse housing conditions. Okay, um, they had basically huts outside of the city. Now, the Shang cities were surrounded by massive walls for protection, and uh, one archaeological dig found a Shang city with a wall that was 118 feet wide, and it covered an area of 1.2 square miles. And it is estimated that it likely took about 10,000 men and more than 12 years to build it. And the reason why the Shang needed large city walls is because they were always at war. Uh, there was always conflict, and we're going to get into that a little bit more later on in the podcast. All right, so let's now move to their uh, to Chinese culture, okay, and the Shang culture. Um, in the Chinese view, people who lived outside of Chinese civilization were called barbarians. Right, um, and because the Chinese saw their country as the center of the civilized world, world, their own name for China was the Middle Kingdom. The culture that grew up in China had what we call strong unifying bonds, and this was done through a family. A person's chief loyalty throughout life was to the family. Beyond this, the people owed their obedience and respect to the ruler of the Middle Kingdom, and they also owed their respect to the elders in their family. 
Now, family was central to Chinese society. The most important virtue was respect for one's parents. The elder men in the family controlled the family's property and made important decisions. However, women, on the other hand, were treated as inferiors. They were expected to obey their fathers, their husbands, and later, their own sons. All right, let's now move into the social classes of uh, the Shang dynasty. Shang society was sharply divided between nobles and peasants. A ruling class of warrior nobles headed by a king governed the Shang. These noble families own the land. Now, a noble is when a person belongs to a hereditary class with high social or political status. Now, these nobles, they governed the scattered villages within the Shang lands, and they sent what is called tribute to the Shang ruler in exchange for local control. And tribute is a payment made to keep peace. And the nobles enjoyed much better, uh, much more rights and much better living conditions than the peasants did. Okay. So if we were going to look at this in a social hierarchy, in like a social pyramid, at the top would be um, the, the king. Okay. Below that would be the warrior nobles. Okay. And they would have the second most power. And then under that, you would have usually um, normal citizens. Okay, and then below that you would have your peasants and then your your um, slaves. All right, let's move on to uh, religion. In China, again, the family was closely linked to religion. The Chinese believed that the spirits of family ancestors had the power to bring good fortune or disaster to living family members. Every family paid respect to the father's ancestors and made sacrifices in their honor. Through the spirit of the ancestors, the Shang consulted the gods. The Shang worshipped a supreme god, Shang Di, as well as many lesser gods. Shang kings consulted the gods through the use of what are oracle bones. And oracle bones are animal bones and tortoise shells on which priests had scratch, scratched questions for the gods to answer. After inscribing a question on the bone, a priest applied a hot poker to it, which caused it to crack. The priests then interpreted the cracks to see how the gods had answered. In addition to the oracle bones, it also appears that there was a belief in the afterlife during the Shang dynasty. Archaeologists have found Shang tombs surrounded by the skulls and bodies of human sacrifices. Some of these contain jade, which was thought to protect against decay and grant immortality. Chinese archaeologists theorized that the Shang believed their servants would continue to serve them in the afterlife. Because of this belief, noble servants would be killed and buried with them when they died. Another interpretation of this is that they were possibly enemy warriors captured in battle. All right. Now, let's move on to the economy of the Shang. Like Mesopotamia and the Indus River Valley civilization, the Shang dynasty economy was based mainly on agriculture. Because of the natural geographic barriers, the Shang needed to mostly depend on themselves for every aspect of their civilization because they were isolated from other areas. The food that they grew was mainly for them to eat, and they developed irrigation systems from the Yellow and Yangtze rivers in order to grow their crops. 
There was also job specialization in the Shang Dynasty. Jobs that people could have included nobles, soldiers, bronze workers, sculptors, architects, painters, potters, priests, and then of course, farmers. Finally, historians have found evidence of currency in the Shang Dynasty. The currency came in the form of cowrie shells. Now, not much is known how the cowrie shells were used, but we do know that they were placed in tombs as a currency for the afterlife, which leads us to believe that they did um, use it while they were in the natural world. All right, the next part of the Shang Dynasty that we're going to talk about is the writing. In the, uh, and we talked about earlier that this is one of the biggest achievements of the Shang. In the Chinese method of writing, there, is, uh, there are characters, okay? and each character generally stands for one syllable or unit of language. One could read Chinese without actually being able to speak a word of it. The Chinese system of writing had one major advantage. All right. First of all, it allowed them to um, put down written records, which helped historians know about the Shang. But also, people in all parts of China could learn the same system of writing, even if their spoken languages were very different. Thus, the Chinese writing written language helped unify a large and diverse land, and it made control much easier. The disadvantage of the Chinese system was the enormous number of written characters to be memorized. There was a different one for each unit of language. For example, a person needed to know over 1,500 characters to be barely literate. To be a true scholar, one needed to know at least 10,000 characters. For centuries, this severely limited the number of literate, educated Chinese. And as a general rule, a noble person's children learned to write, but peasant children did not. Now, we talked about how um, the Shang were constantly involved in conflict. Okay, And so what we're going to talk about next is um, technological innovations and warfare. And these sort of go hand in hand. All right, so the Shang were big um, in developing bronze, and bronze is an alloy of copper and tin, which was a hugely important metal during the Shang period. Shang metal workers developed a highly sophisticated method for casting bronze and used it to make ceremonial object and objects and weapons. Bronze swords and spearheads were stronger than the other available metals, which gave Shang soldiers an advantage in battle. Mastery of bronze was an important advancement for the Shang military, but in addition to this, the combination of horse, chariot, and composite bow were also integral to its, to its success. The chariot is a two-wheeled cart, which was a war cart, which was pulled by horses, and it allowed Shang soldiers to move really far distances at great speeds, and it also acted as, as a mobile archery platform. Okay. So if you can imagine this, you have a horse, it's attached to a, a cart, which makes it a chariot, and then you've got Shang soldiers who are sitting in the cart. One of them is driving, and in a conflict, they could move really fast, and you could have people standing in the chariot with um, bow and arrows, okay, shooting at the uh, other um, civilization who's trying to invade, all right? or um, they could have you know spears and things like that from which they could um, more easily defeat their enemies. All right. Um, now, these military technologies were important because, again, the Shang were constantly at war. 
And because of their technological innovations, and because they were constantly at war, Shang armies expanded the borders of the Shang kingdom and captured pressure resources and prisoners of war who could be enslaved or used as human sacrifices. Now, the oracle bones okay, uh, show deep concern over the barbarians, okay? And we talked about how they saw barbarians as anyone who was not Chinese, okay? And uh, they showed deep concern for those barbarians living outside the empire. And these were the people who they saw as a constant threat to the safety and the stability of the kingdom. And the military had to be constantly ready to fight them. All right, so finally, let's talk about the decline uh, of the Shang Dynasty. And then I'm going to introduce a topic here because we are talking about early Chinese civilizations, specifically the Shang. I want to introduce to you the concept of the Mandate of Heaven and then the Dynastic Cycle. All right, so around uh, 1027 BCE, a people called the Zhou overthrew the Shang and established their own dynasty. The Zhou adopted much of the Shang culture, right? So therefore, the change in the dynasty did not bring sweeping cultural changes. They basically um, kept a lot of the same ideas, um, social, political, economic ideas, cultural ideas that the Shang had. So really, even though the Zhou took over, the Shang really did continue um, with their ideas. Now, nevertheless, the Zhou rule did bring new ideas to Chinese civilization. And to justify their conquest of the Shang, the Zhou leaders declared that the final Shang king had been such a poor ruler that the gods had taken away the Shang's rule and given it to the Zhou. This justification developed over time into a broader view that the king's authority came from heaven. A just ruler had a divine approval, which is known as the mandate of heaven, meaning that God had given him the right to rule. A wicked or foolish king could lose the mandate of heaven and so lose the right to rule. And one of the ideas that goes along with the mandate of heaven is that people um, will not question you as a ruler if they think that God has said that you and your family should be the rulers. And that's one of the big things about the mandate of heaven. And that's why it was so powerful in Chinese civilizations. All right, so the Mandate of Heaven became central to the Chinese view of government. Floods, riots, and other problems might be a sign that ancestral spirits were displeased with a king's rule. And in that case, the Mandate of Heaven might pass to another noble family. And this was the Chinese explanation for rebellion, civil war, and the rise of new dynasties. Okay? And historians describe the pattern of the rise, decline, and replacement of dynasties as the dynastic cycle. And this is going to be a theme all right, throughout Chinese um, history is that you are going to have this, um, you are going to have rebellions all right, because um, people can use the mandate of heaven um, if bad things are happening uh, under a certain um, family's rule, if bad things are happening. They'll use the mandate of heaven to say, well, the gods are not pleased with you, all right, and therefore you need to step down. And if you don't, then we are going to rebel against you. There's going to be a war, all right, and then eventually there's going to be the rise of a new dynasty. 
Okay, so that is the Shang Dynasty. Uh, it is the last of the River Valley civilizations that we are going to cover. All right. Um, I hope that you can see the importance of each of the River Valley civilizations that we have covered uh, in these podcast episodes. And hopefully you will be able to see the similarities and differences between them and understand the lasting impact that we have. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'll see you next time.